0: Another day, another dollar, makes you wonder where your
1: money went. Hey folks, this is dream. Jack Spirica with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You As always, we'll view of the changing world, the changing really times, and the matter. things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, there. or even if they don't dictate it a little bit differently today from my home office slash recording. Studio, So instead of all that road noise and all that background noise and all that static and me yelling occasionally at a driver, you'll just hear me and you'll hear people from the audience calling in with their questions. Because today, since I'm home, I've made time again to do a show where I answer your questions. Because this show is really about you, the audience. I want to remind people, especially since we have so many new listeners this week, as I just said, this show is one man's opinion. I will only tell you something's a fact when I can source it and tell you where I found it. Everything else on this show is commentary. It's designed to make you think. It's designed to help you come up with your own plans to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't, you are free to disagree with me. You can call in and tell me you disagreed with me at eight six six sixty five. think Not the fastest way, because I only get to do shows like this once every few weeks. Uh, the best way to disagree with me, if you feel like it, come by the blog, thesurvivalpodcast.com, post your comments in the show that you disagree with, and tell me. And when you point something out where I'm wrong and where I've made a mistake, I usually say thank you, and I correct it, because I want to give people the right information. If you disagree with me just because you disagree with me on... Uh, Uh, on like an etherical level or whatever, then I'll probably debate you. Uh, But that doesn't mean I don't value your opinion. I value the opinion of every member of this audience, and I want to make sure that's understood. Uh, Today's show, again, listener calls, so I'm just going to start taking those here in just a second. I want to go ahead real quick through and do my house cleaning at the beginning of the show. Uh, Number one, um, I want to make sure I remind everybody continuously, Region 5's big get-together over Memorial Day weekend uh, down near Gulfway, Texas. Come one, come all. Link in the show notes today members support brigade please if you think you get more than 25 cents of value per show consider joining the Member Support Brigade and get content that's available exclusively uh, to members of the Member Support Brigade. I want to point something out about the MSB, though. I saw a forum thread where somebody was discussing what we do over here at Survival Podcast on somebody else's forum, and they said they were disappointed to find out that parts of the forum were restricted and only available to people that were paying members. That is not true. There is nothing on the forum. There is nothing on the blog. There is nothing in the podcasts that are not available to you. Even the forum board where we talk about the videos in the member support brigade, you can see it. You just can't see the videos that are back there for the people that support the show financially at a quarter an episode. Uh, the next thing I wanted to do is point out again, Dirt Time 09. Me, myself and 13 other survival experts will be out in the San Bernardino uh, area for Dirt Time 09. If you want to come to that, it's way out in August, but it's almost sold out already. Link in the show notes. And of course, there's the lights out audio preview that you can download from uh, the Survival Podcast that was authored by David Crawford. And I am trying, trying to go ahead and knock it out with an audio version. That's it for the house cleaning. So let's go ahead and start taking calls from the audience. I want to point something out. I said yesterday, if you called in with a really great question, you'd have a good chance of being on today, and I started going through my inventory of calls from what came in yesterday and come in the past couple days, most of these are very recent calls, just because they're such good calls, I'm going to go ahead and take them, if you called in a couple of weeks ago and you're wondering when your call is going to get on, most of those folks you've been on before, so I'm kind of putting other people to the front of the line, especially newer people or people that have never called in before, I'm going to try this weekend to do another one of these shows and pre-record it for next week, uh, so I'll we'll probably get you on. And then rest assured I will get to everybody sooner or later, and I hope to be doing more shows like this in the future. So let's go ahead and take that first call. Oh, yeah. Uh, one more thing right before I go ahead and take the call. Um, I wanted to point out that uh, we've taken a, a new advertiser into the family here at the Survival Podcast called Ready Made Resources. Uh, you can find uh, a banner for Ready Made Resources in the uh, right hand margin at the Survival They were approved by our moderator staff before. Uh, we actually let them on the site, and they have to go through that review. And these guys checked into them deeply. They checked their eBay record. They checked their return policy. They checked everything. They gave them a unanimous thumbs up. So check out Ready-Made Resources uh, as a new sponsor to the show.
2: Hey, Jack. It's Trevor, uh, 983T0 on the forum. And I tell you, I love the show. I've been listening now for, a well, while. i got about 109 episodes on my uh, iPod. And, uh, I absolutely love it, and it's a great, valuable resource. I was in the military, and I agree with a lot of things you do, especially the threat matrix probability. And, uh, it's really great and informative. I have some real quick questions, uh, like, what would be a good place, if, say, uh, you have a real bad scenario that happens, or just even you're out, uh, you know, on your own for some reason, where would you acquire some form of a cooking oil? whether it be from like a lard from an animal or you know, whether it be some sort of an oil from coconuts or some sort of natural resource. So if you have any ideas where you would acquire oil for cooking and maybe some type of oil for either like a, a, a lamp or something like that. And some other great questions on different ways to start a fire. I've seen it on the forum, but maybe there's some people who haven't joined the forum or something like that. But different ways to start fires, uh... by hand you know whether it using uh... the magnesium fire starters or you know just other different ways to set up fires or cooking pots or stuff like that would be great to hear but uh... that's all i've got for now i really appreciate everything you do thanks a lot keep up the w- great work and all the people on the forums real friendly and hope everything works out at the big region five event take care and thanks jack
1: um... that's a great question there trevor and there's uh, really two questions there so let's uh... let's start with the first one on uh... fat and oils you know traditionally uh, one of the uh, plants used most for this has been olives. Uh, unfortunately for us, you can't really grow them in huge quantities in most of the United States, so it's not an option for most people. Uh, you mentioned coconuts. They're not the greatest source of oil, believe it or not, for easily extracted oil, and again, uh, very few places in the United States can grow coconuts. That leaves most of us, if we are without oils or fats, to result to using animal fats and uh it's a, actually a pretty easy process and it's something that everybody did just you know 100 years ago and whether it's a, a hog that you you keep as livestock or a deer that you shoot in the woods or a bear that you shoot in the woods and some of the fats of like bear fat has kind of a strong taste to it but it'll work it'll do what you need uh it'll get it'll, you know get the job done for you um it's a pretty simple process of simply slicing all the hard white tallowish fat uh off the animal putting it into a kettle and heating it slowly until it liquefies and straining it into a container for storage. Uh, it really is that easy and it'll do everything from like you were talking about running a lamp to allowing you to fry foods with it. Uh, but this is a, it's, a, it's a time consuming process and it involves being able to, uh, to kill an animal that will provide you with fat. So this is a great reason to make sure that you're storing uh, oil, fat, lard with your preps. It's pretty easy right now to run down to the store and buy a couple gallons of uh, peanut oil or corn oil or whatever your oil of choice is. Uh, it stores well, keep it away from light and air, and uh, has a very long shelf life. And it's something most people use all the time, uh, so just continue to use it. and. Uh, and one of the other things you could start doing, I think a lot of people have lost the wisdom of my grandpa- our grandparents. A lot of people I see, you know, you use oil to fry something like a potato or something like that to make French fries. And then they throw the oil away. You know, my grandmother used the same oil over and over and over again. She'd pour it back into the bottle. Unless you're frying something like fish, you could generally reuse your oil. And it's something that we might want to get in the habit of just to save money. And uh, if we ever get to a point where we're relying on our preps... Definitely, you don't want to throw your oil away just because you fried with it one time. Uh, That's a wasteful thing that America has gotten into. Uh, the other question on fire, uh, the easiest thing you can do is make sure you have a bunch of ways to make flame that are easy that anybody can do, uh, being able to flick your Bic, so to speak. Uh, you can buy five lighters. I saw at Walmart the other day for like a $1.19 for a little pack of five different colored Bic lighters. Bic lighters are not the most reliable source. I'm just trying to make a point here that it's pretty easy to use a lighter or a match to make a fire. easier than just about any of the other implements. So you start with that. You don't rely on it. You start with having uh, lighters and matches matches stored just about everywhere you possibly can. There's no reason not to. For a $20 investment, you could have enough matches and lighters to make fires for years. So why not do it? Uh, the next step is, yeah, learn some primitive techniques. Bow drill and hand drill are both good techniques to learn. Uh, there are things you can implement anywhere that you would be in the woods you could find dry wood. Uh, the other thing is, consider some of the other implements. Our new advertiser... Uh, uh ready made resources actually has a really cool parabolic mirror solar fire starter these things are just awesome the mods uh if, you, if you're listening to me out there guys uh they want you to donate a few for us to review and talk about on the forum uh they thought these were really cool i'm going to probably just go ahead and buy one uh they're about 14 bucks i'll put a link in the show notes uh the magnesium fire starters too i really like those uh i carry one with me just about everywhere i go they're about 4 bucks uh you can teach yourself to use those pretty fast uh but start with the basics carry gliders carry matches that's the easy answer and it's the first step not the only step
3: hey jack this is ransom call from austin texas uh, great job on the podcast it's awesome to listen every day um just started to get active in the forum um my question is financial uh, i guess i do follow the, the ramsey um approach i've taken care of my debt with that snowball it works um working on an emergency fund, building an emergency fund up and kind of coming into a dilemma between uh, do I spend more money on preps or do I continue throwing money at my emergency fund? Uh, at this point, you know, I can kind of go one way or the other. Um, appreciate your thoughts on that and um, great show. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thanks a lot. From us.
1: Okay, that's a great question. It's also one of those questions that makes me really wish that uh, I was to a point where I could be doing these calls live and I could be asking you a few more questions to make the answer more specific. So I'll have to generalize the answer as best I can. Number one, congratulations to you for getting out of debt. It's a huge thing and it'll make the decision of what to do next a hell of a lot easier because now you have the surplus money to even worry about. And most people are in a position where there is no surplus money and you don't worry about do I prep, uh, or do I save the money. You worry about, well, what the heck, what the heck do I do to get some money so I can prep and save money? So you're past that, so great. And that's why the first step is eliminating debt. Here's what I would say. If your emergency fund won't carry you at least 30 days, initially the bulk of your money should continue to go into your emergency fund. That said, you're in a position where you're exposed. You don't have 30 days of supplies or 30 days worth of money. All right if you get into a point where you need the supplies you may be at a point where you can't just use the money to buy the supplies so what you the best thing i can advise you to do is try to get to a 30 day emergency fund as quickly as you can Keeping an eye on the situation around you. You're down in Austin. You know, we're dealing with some forest fires and brush fires in Texas right now, but not much else that would, you know, even be a large, you know, regional disaster in the state of Texas seems to be too imminent right now. Um, you know, meltdown of the economy, things like that. I think we're actually going to go through an inflationary boosted recovery here, uh, pretty soon. And, uh, you know, I don't see the zombie hordes coming to get you or anything. So it probably makes sense to put the bulk of your savings Toward your cash and your emergency fund until you have at least 30 days. Once you have at least 30 days, now start to maybe split it and split it on maybe a 60 40 ratio, a 70 30 ratio, still putting the balance toward your savings. When you get to a 60 day point, maybe you split it in half. When you get to a 90 day emergency fund, uh, situation, we have enough cash to go 90 days, start working more on your preps, maybe put all of the extra funding toward prepping for a couple months. By that point, by kind of hybriding the two, you should probably end up with enough cash to go 90 days and enough preps to go 30 to 60 days. If you're in that situation, you're better off than 95% of America. The real key here though is you're going to have to make this decision for yourself. I can't really tell you exactly what to do. You have to evaluate your situation. And the reality is as long as you're saving money, And as long as we're not dealing with complete crazy runaway inflation, and as long as we don't have an intimate, you know, the end of the world as we know it threat coming, and most of those we should see some warning to, the cash can always be spent tomorrow, but you can't return the preps tomorrow if you buy the wrong thing. So think long and hard about what you buy. Buy the right stuff and try to start your prepping by buying the things that you're gonna buy anyway. In other words, don't run out and buy a $1,500 AR-15. If you don't have a gun and you feel you need a means to defense, go out and buy yourself a good 870 shotgun for 250 bucks brand new. And, uh, keep putting that money away into that cash reserve supply. You're gonna buy food, don't go out, don't go out initially and buy, you know, 60 days of long-term storage food. Just go to the grocery store and start the simple process of, I was going to buy two cans of tuna fish this week. I'm going to buy four and put two away. And when I buy two more, I'm going to take the two out of storage and replace them with these and start that rotational pattern of storing what you eat and eat what you store and then realize the money that you're spending on food isn't so much on preps. It's on creating an inventory of things that you're just buying in advance. But uh, do keep building that emergency fund. Cash is something that you cannot uh, just ignore. You, you can't just have stuff. You've got to have both. You've got to diversify there. Let's go ahead and take another question.
4: Hey, Jack. This is Wheatland on the forums. Love the show. I've been a listener since last September and have run every episode through my cheap little MP3 player, Uh, even the early ones with the crappy audio, but uh, they've all been worth it. Well, I've got an economic question for you, plus a little background so you'll understand why I'm asking. First, the question. Are we likely to see interest rates skyrocket like they did in the 1970s? And if so, what should we watch for as early indicators? Here's why I'm asking. A wife and I are planning to sell our current house before prices fall too far. and We live in a part of Region 5 which hasn't yet seen house prices drop by much. Now, why are we moving? Well, we're moving to get more of a homestead and uh, in the process to lower our overall debt picture, so this is a decision we've come to as a family apart from the current economic downturn. Now, we're making arrangements to rent month to month to give us time to find a good deal on a house with the location and the features that we want. What I'm worried about is selling now renting for six to twelve months while we look but before we can find a great location and close on it seeing interest rates take off so we find ourselves having to settle for a rate of nine or twelve or eighteen or even twenty percent or more if rates do what they did in the seventies so what's your take on that is that a possibility Uh, what else would you be watching out for if you were in my shoes thanks for your opinion
1: that's a really great question and uh, but it is kind of an involved answer let me start with the beginning why did the 70s end up with these 18% interest rates in the first place? That actually goes back to the 60s. It goes back to a guy named JFK which uh, you know, Democrats today hold up is uh god, we need another president like him. Well, JFK still had really high tax rates, but he cut the hell out of them for the more they were when he took office. It really started to stimulate the economy, and a little guy named uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson started to reverse that trend and started to push uh, taxation rates back up and then began a program of spending on both guns and butter like nobody else and put us into about $2 trillion worth of debt. Uh, it was the first really big inflation of the debt. In the same time, we then moved into where a guy named Nixon came in, took over, and you can think whatever you want about Watergate; doesn't really matter here. Um, one thing Nixon did was take us off the uh, very last vestiges of the gold standard in '75, uh, and that diverged the dollar from gold uh, and allowed for runaway inflation. So, why did the interest rates go up? Well, the interest rates went up because prices were going up so fast. That they had to do something to control the price inflation on the primary thing that was an expense to Americans, and that was real estate. So what you do if you were the Federal Reserve and you want to slow down an economy that's moving too fast is you raise interest rates. So it's it's a an inflationary recovery that drives interest rates up. And are we in danger of going there? Yes, but I don't think it'll be like the 70s at least not in the next 6 to 12 months, which is the time frame you're looking at. So I don't think it's going to catch you by surprise. I don't think you'll see um in the next 6 months interest rates at 4% one day and 9.5% the next day. You'll you'll have time to make a decision if you need to. Most lenders, one of the things you really probably want to do is once you sell your property, you want to get pre-approved for a loan, and a lot of times you can lock an interest rate for 30 to 60 days um, even if you don't already have a property that you want to buy. Uh, sometimes there's some earnest money required to do that or whatever. So if you get close, you think you're going to buy soon, you can look at locking an interest rate if you're worried. Uh, I just don't see it coming soon. There was an interesting series of events that occurred uh, from 75 through uh the, the early 80s until Reagan kind of got things under control uh, that just aren't likely to happen here. One thing we don't see happening short term, and again, this is the C year you're talking here, is our economy recovering at breakneck pace uh, along with massive inflation really quickly to cause the uh, the fed to raise interest rates raising interest rates right now um... is not going to do anything good it would make the situation much much worse uh... maybe a point or two would make sense but not enough that's really gonna change your buying power what you can buy so i would relax on it a little bit i would keep a very close eye on the situation uh... you may have to accelerate your decision here or there but you're smart to do things the way you are. You want to be willing to walk away from any property when you're looking for a deal. Uh, so you know, take your time. Find the right property. And when you do, you'll find a way to buy it. And uh, you're not going to see interest rates going through the roof uh, until we have a real real estate market recovery. So you start to see the real estate market really start to recover and the economy look like it's really starting to kick into high gear. Uh, that's when you can start worrying about that. Until then, I wouldn't worry too much. Uh, again, just keep an eye on the situation. Hey, it's Joe up in Alaska again. Uh, just a quick comment. I was wondering uh, if you use the water from a pool, a chlorinated water,
3: if they use it to flush a toilet or something, would that kill your septic tank with uh, chlorine or the shock treatment or whatever? Would that kill your septic? Just a thought. Love the show. Thanks.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Joe, and thanks for calling all the way from the wilds of Alaska. For those of you who haven't heard Joe call in before, he's way out in the... Uh, in the, uh, I can't think of the, what they call it now, but he's out in the sticks, man. He's not, uh, he's not in Anchorage. Anyway, uh, this is a great question because it's one of those questions where I went, huh, I hadn't thought of that. And I love when somebody asks me a question that I just can't bang out the answer to in 10 seconds and I have to do a little research. I checked into it. There's not a lot of content online about this subject, but if you continuously dump chlorinated water into a septic system, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that you will kill all the little microorganisms down there doing their job. Uh, most of the content is not about, you know, the shit hit the fan scenarios and people dumping in a five-gallon bucket uh, into their toilet whenever they need it to flush, where it's the only water going. And it's what happens if you drain your pool and it runs into your leach field, and how often can this happen? And as long as your septic system is running at normal levels, the 320 gallons a month didn't seem to really do anything of pool water uh, running into the leach field.
4: What that tells you is that, it, let's say
1: you were without water for a couple days, And uh, you use some pool water over a couple days, you probably don't have that much to worry about. If you used it long term, yeah, you would. It it would kill things. So, what do you do? you got to keep your pool water somewhat clean. You don't want it all green and nasty and it should hit the fan. So, my suggestion would then be that you get yourself some 5-gallon buckets that you're going to need to carry the water inside anyway. As soon as you end up in that shit-hit-the-fan scenario, you fill up all your five-gallon buckets, um, maybe you put something over them gently to uh, control stuff getting in them, like a screen or something, but allow evaporation, and within about 48 hours, pool water sitting in a bucket is dechlorinated, there's no chlorine left. Uh, In a small volume, it comes out of the water very, very quickly. Cover your pool. That'll reduce how much you lose out of your pool, extend your chlorine life, and uh, use at least a 48-hour waiting period once you get some rotation going on between bringing your water from your pool and flushing your toilet. If you live in the city and you're in that situation and you're tied to a typical um sewer system without your own septic obviously this doesn't matter but it's it's a good point Joe and it's something I had never thought of so those of you that are using your pools and thinking they're a backup source of water especially for flushing toilets uh or bathing or things like that you may really want to think about dumping that into your uh, septic tank and guys you know we're blessed in the fact that we can go into the woods and just take care of business when it comes to uh to one of our needs so in that situation, you probably want to set up an exterior latrine and use as much as possible anyway to put less stress on your septic system. Uh, but, again, it's a convenience, and it's an additional source of water. Just think about what you do with it, especially when you're adding chemicals to it.
3: Jack, this
0: is Mark from Minneapolis. Um, question I have for you. If we're going to undergo inflation predicted in the future, um, won't our, hopefully, our salaries also be inflated it, wouldn't it be easier to pay off um, mortgages and that, that type of thing? I'm just wondering if it would make more sense to, to uh, pay it off at that time, although I, I would continue, of course, to try to pay it off as much as I could now. Anyhow, just a question on the inflationary. Um, thanks.
3: Talk to you later. Bye.
1: Well, Mark, another great question. Um, actually, you're you're spot on with, uh, with one of the realities uh, that are out there. You have to think about the whole thing balanced up. Um, this is a good way to think about why you should buy a house in the first place and why of all the debt that's out there that I think if you buy a house you can afford um, with a fixed rate loan, Fifteen, twenty, to thirty years—you know, whatever one of those makes the most sense for you in your given situation—and even if you just make the minimum mortgage payments on it, it's still a good decision and it's a good investment. Because over time, the ha- price of real estate generally climbs. Again, this is if you buy sane, and the people that bought a nine hundred thousand dollars house that was worth six hundred thousand dollars when they paid nine hundred thousand, and now can't sell it for for, for five hundred—the the problem was paying too much for a house that just wasn't worth that much uh that we're chasing a runaway market. And if you don't do that, uh you'll never get into that bad of a situation anyway. I think most of the people that are listening to this show, uh when you come to shop for houses, you're looking at houses somewhere between seventy five and three hundred thousand dollars. And your risk is mitigated there as well because you can't lose two hundred thousand dollars worth of value on a house worth two hundred thousand dollars. It's impossible. You you can't have the eight hundred to six hundred drop. Uh the same percentage drop, what are you gonna do? drop? Two hundred to uh to one fifty? I mean, that's even a bigger percentage drop. So uh, your risk is mitigated with lower-priced housing as long as you buy good areas, sensible markets, sensible interest rates. So, yes, uh, with inflation hitting, and it does sooner or later over time anyway, uh, your house payment may go to a point where you don't even want to pay it off early. Um, My father-in-law has about 10 years left to pay on his house. But his house payment, folks... It's a three-bedroom little house, nice little place, is uh, about 260 bucks, including taxes, because he's got uh, low taxes because of uh, being a senior citizen and living there before he became a senior citizen. It's one of the good things Mansfield does. So that's the situation. Can you buy any house with a payment under $300 today? No, but a guy that bought his house 20 years ago, he's sitting there. And the guy making the $800 payment today, 20 years from now, people will go, $800 for a house payment? Oh, my God, wow. Right so that potential's there there's 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 a couple things you have to watch out for though one is just i don't care what the payment is and i don't care how much your wages go up if you weren't paying the house payment you could be investing and saving the money so you st- if you paying the house off early always helps it's just you should pay all your other debts first number 2 you really have to think about where you buy a house so that you don't as you see the uh the 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 cost of affording the house based on inflation declining, you want to make sure that you're not seeing your tax burden go up so quickly that you end up like some of these elderly people I feel so bad for in some of our cities today. They've lived in their house for 35, 40 years. They paid it off long ago. And they can't even afford the taxes because these cities are going crazy with their taxation. This is why I'm so big on eventually finding a place in rural America where you can't have the runaway tax abuse that we do in our cities today. And if you look at the biggest cities in the United States, people are leaving them in record numbers now. They cannot afford the property even if the base price of the property is taken care of. It's the tax bill. I have friends in New Jersey that live near an area called Sterling. Their taxes are fourteen thousand dollars a year. Fourteen thousand a year. Every ten years, they're paying a hundred and forty thousand dollars in taxes. You got to think about that. You got to make that part of your decision. But yes, historically, um, over time, inflation makes the price of your housing go down relative to your income if you buy today. That's one of the good reasons to buy a house. Uh again you just gotta be sane about it. You gotta think about what you're doing.
2: Hey
0: Jack, this is Elias Wolf from the Forum. I was wondering if you can comment on the survival gun myth that common calibers like twenty two and nine millimeter, forty five two three and three oh eight. We easy to find that the shit it's a fan. Um, I spent most of last week just trying to find some twenty two long rifle ammo. After Lord knows how many Walmarts G.I. Joe's by Mars and country stores I finally had them on a Walmart that just got 20 er excuse me they just got two Winchester value packs in stock this morning I bought those uh that said I've seen a lot of 17 caliber and less mainstream rifle ammo like 300 Winchester 243 and 30 30 in stock uh, I've had no luck finding primers anywhere and Swartzman's warehouse in have seen system as a joke um Here's a mini rant for just your information. I have guys and gals in my work carrying five-year-old check hollow points, and I'm on duty. Um, Jack, thank you for your time, and I really appreciate the podcast. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks there, Mr. Wolf. Um, I actually think I commented on this recently, but it bears repeating, and this is something that I see in almost every forum, and I've been guilty of it myself in the past, and it really didn't sink in for me until the last gun show I recently went to. Um, yeah, that is the myth, that 9mm, 45, uh, 223, 308. Those are your best ammo choices, it's your best weapons choices because that's what's out there, that's what has the highest amount of volume, uh, so you'll be able to find it. Well, if it's what everybody's shooting, it's what everybody buys first. And, and I'm with you, man. When I walked to that last gun show, when I got there, there was 9mm everywhere. There was 45 everywhere. There was 223 everywhere, and there was 308 everywhere. I was only there for a few hours, and by the time I left, I thought, you know what, maybe I should grab another ammo can full of nine millimeter for this little Keltec I just purchased, and for my my high point carbines at the house, you know, while I'm here. And uh, I ended up just not feeling like being there anymore. But on the way out, I thought, well, if I see it, I'll grab it on the way out, you know. And a lot of the tables that I walked by that were full up when I got there were already empty on it. But you know what? You're right. Thirty thirty Winchester, get all you want. Three hundred Win Mag. Get all you want. Even thirty oh six, which used to be, you know, the three oh eight of its day as far as being a mill caliber and everything, plenty of thirty oh six. Plenty of it. Um, all of that ammo will make animals dead and make bad guys dead. So I'm beginning to believe that you're right and it makes some sense to think about some diversity in your uh, your weaponry. And uh, I already kind of have some, just because I'm a reloader and I like to have different different options. But you know, 38 Special, 357 Magnum, or 44 Magnum, 44 Special, great carbines in those, great handguns in those, both very very proven rounds, inexpensive to reload for because they use a low amount of powder. Uh, your rifle calibers, I mean, you think about it uh there's plenty of 30 caliber weapons out there other than 308 uh they ballistically are either a little bit better or a little bit worse but in the field really not a hell of a lot of difference um, now of course when you start looking at your platforms like your AR15s uh or you know your SKSs your AK47s with 762 um You've you've got the platform and the we, we, uh, ammo commonality there. Uh, the, you know you kind of can't find a lot of AR-15s that'll fire thirty oh six, right? So if you're if you're married to a platform, you got to deal with the ammo shortage. So one of the things I think everybody should be doing is looking into reloading because when you look into reloading you lower your overall cost you give yourself an ability to go beyond what you can buy and store it's a lot easier to store a few cans of powder a bunch of primers and a bunch of uh, slugs and then have you know if you let's say do 30 caliber um, you can have let's say a 3030 Winchester a 308 and a 3006 you have a lot of interoperability between those three cases so even if your cases start to run out some point of one of them, if you still have 30 caliber bullets, you can use them across the board. Obviously, you have some expansion issues with heavier bullets in your 30 30 Winchester, but you can throw 150-grain bullets, uh, flat points, in any of those, and uh, it will do the job on medium game or bad guys, right? So it is something to think about. It is a myth that it will be available. I think it's going to be less available. Um... Because I guarantee you right now I can go down to Academy And if I want 30-30 Winchester If I want 243s If I want 30 Carbine If I want 270 I don't have any problem Picking up that ammo Anytime I want to Because it's less common So less people buy it So the volume that's out there May be lower in total But the availability Usually sticks around A little bit better But again, reloading Your guys that are carrying Duty pieces With five-year-old ammo Smack them in the freaking head Um... It's just stupid. You're betting your life and the life of the public that you serve on it as an officer? That's just stupid. I'm sorry it is. Will it probably work? Yes, but probably is not good enough for my life. My God, you can buy a box of ammo a year to carry on duty if you're an officer. Please don't do that to yourself. That said, I bought some... Uh, uh Arabic Turkish loaded uh eight millimeter from one of my old surplus mausers uh that we've been around since the thirties and some of it was so decrepit that the slugs were falling out. The stuff that wasn't, I haven't had a misfire. So it's not that it will go bad, it's that it could and uh you know just don't bet your life on stuff like that, folks, if you're in one of those types of positions. Hello. Uh
3: this is Joe. Say hey, um got some Family property in East Texas about five hours away. Red dirt, East Texas pines. And um it's this house there already and there's pump, there's actually water. But uh, there's not really a bunch of crops to work with or, so I'm wondering what sort of crops, I mean, I guess we can get photovoltaics, go into a, <coughs> like a, a, an elevated tank which could probably just pump water from the water up to the tank during um, sunlight and then just have Drip irrigation going on something like plant some trees, food trees, some 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 food crops. Kind of wondering what food crops aren't those types that you have to redo them every year. What 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 can what can we put that'll take minimum minimal effort? Maybe once a week for a month and then you know there's berries, there's grapes, like you said, there's trees like loquats and, Kond, and I uh, just, just want to know what, what else we can plant like squash that comes back every year is it, is it is it normal for squash to come back every year is that a like an heirloom type thing that'll do better?
1: Hey Joe well a uh, really cool question there uh, finishing uh starting with the ending there though um, no, I don't know of any squash that you can plant leave it alone and it'll come back every year um, That said, if you wanted to grow some squash every year, there are heirloom varieties you could buy. Um, that where you could easily save your seeds you want to keep a lot of distance between squashes to prevent cross-pollination uh, and what it might be a good idea if you wanted some squashes to settle on like there's a zucchini called trombone zucchini which you can grow small or very large it vines, um it's a good summer squash and then plant you know a winter squash of you know several weeks after it to keep the pollination times as far apart as possible and even with another summer cross variety keep your planting time separate and you can replant it but you are going to have to replant it but it won't require a lot you know squash is one of those things that you know you have to do it every year but as long as you prep your area decently give it some good soil to work with water it um, and you have some drip irrigation you're not going to have to do a lot with it other than pick it. And that's one thing I'll caution you with squash. Once it starts to produce, especially your summer varieties, produces like crazy. Your winter varieties might produce five or six uh, squash per vine. Kind of take care of themselves in the cooler part of the fall. They're pretty much ready to go. You cut them, they store well. So you got to make a choice on that. But they're not permaculture crops. The stuff you're talking about is really a lot better. Some of the things you mentioned yourself there. Pecans, and you're talking East Texas. So let's talk the things that will grow in East Texas very well. Pecans and peaches. Uh, this is an excellent climate to grow those. They'll even handle that red soil pretty well. When you first plant your smaller trees, you probably want to give them some good soil to start out in. Give them some, uh, good organic fertilizer, which can be done just by ringing the entire area around the tree, uh, with compost and then a thick layer of cypress mulch is probably the best thing to use around here. And, uh, if you do that, and what I'm talking is you plant your tree, and you know, it's this little bitty tree, but you make a circle around that tree, maybe, oh, I, I guess you want to go out uh, at least uh, eight feet from the trunk of the tree all the way around. Put down a one-inch layer of a good organic compost. And if you're doing these in a row, like making a little orchard, maybe you don't go out as wide, but you just long row of compost. And then come put this thick bedding of cypress mulch, and you won't have to do uh, very much uh, uh, drip irrigation then, because your irrigation is going to stay in the ground with the trees but you want to kind of expand that area of irrigation as your trees get bigger and you'll find that after not very long maybe two or three seasons you won't even have to really water those trees except in the driest part of the year because they'll kind of look after themselves after that come back year and after year after year Uh, but getting that good starting point for them good root system in is the way to do that. Some other things that will come back that will grow very well in Texas even in East Texas uh, are grapes believe it or not Texas is is really coming along even from a wine production state, believe it or not. That's more down in the southern part of Texas, uh, kind of the drier areas that are similar to the Mediterranean. But you can grow, uh, whether they be uh, table grapes, whether they be typical wine grapes, actually Cabernet uh, grapes actually do very well in Texas because of our hot summers. Uh, Chardonnay, so your two biggest wine grapes do very well here. Uh, Muscadines, uh, which are kind of a very acidic native, uh, native grape to America, uh, a various, you know, your supernogs and things like that, they do very well in Texas as well. Uh, so you can look at grapes for either juice, jelly, wine, or food. It's up to you. Uh, and grapes are something that if you're growing them for wine, once you get the vine established, you actually don't want to overwater or overfertilize it. You want to let the grapes struggle. You Actually, the best wine grapes are a low production volume. In other words, they produce less grapes per vine, so the flavor is more concentrated and intense and you get a better quality wine. So that may be something, if you're not out there all the time looking at, to look at doing uh blackberries do very well in, uh, and there's a thornless blackberry, I can't remember the, the variety, but I'll try to look it up and put a link in the show notes for you, Joe, uh, that produces massive amounts of blackberries for food, for jelly, for juice, and for wine. So those are some various things you can grow, but anything that's a shrub or a bush is going to come back for you. If you like asparagus, you can set up a little patch of asparagus. You go out in the spring and cut your shoots until you've uh, harvested enough for the year, And uh, after a certain point, you let your shoots come up, and you have a great big fern plant every year. You cut it down at the end of the year. Harvest your shoots again next year. Asparagus patches will produce for you for 25 years or more. Uh, you could do the same thing with strawberry patches. and something else to look at doing out there. And uh, I don't know how much land you have. And this is one of those things where I wish I could do the live calls and ask you. If you have a lot of land, you could actually set up a nice little orchard vineyard berry patch and maybe run a pick-your-own operation out there on the weekend where people can come in and pick some of their own produce so you can sell your surplus and use that as a secondary income source. But then if you ever get to a point where you need more food because of a, a tough situation – you've had somebody else kind of fund your startup. So just think about that, and and those are some good varieties and some good suggestions that I can give you in a short response like this.
0: Hey, Jack. This is John in Salt Lake City, Utah. I've got a question for you about gold. Um, I heard you say a little bit of gold is good, um, but at the same time you're saying that inflation is going to go off the charts pretty soon here. So I'm wondering why you don't push gold and silver more than just um, having a a little bit of gold and silver as a diverse uh, investment. If inflation is going to hit so hard, then why wouldn't gold and silver be a smarter way to kind of lock in your the value of your dollar? All right, thanks for your show. Appreciate it. Bye.
1: Okay, John, a great question. Saved it till the end because it's an awesome one. And uh, I had to answer John's question, and the two other people called in in the last two days and asked pretty much the same question. So if you ask that question, John won by luck of the draw. I just uh, randomly picked one of those three. So all of you did a good job asking this question. This is a this is something that I think we have to be very careful about when we look at it and we think about it and we realize some of the people that are giving us advice that we should buy gold and we should put the majority of our savings or half of our investments into gold. Generally speaking, the people that tell you to do that are people that do what for a living? They sell gold. When someone that sells something tells you this is what to buy in place of something else in a high amount, you need to immediately say... Is that true? Is that true? Because they have a vested interest in telling you what to buy. Uh, a person like myself that, that doesn't sell gold or stock uh, will give you my honest opinion. Again, this is my opinion because it doesn't really affect me one way or the other if you buy stock or keep cash or buy gold or buy guns, ammo, beans, bullets, and band-aids and stuck them under your bed. It's up to you to make the final decision. Here's why I take this kind of conservative approach with, with adding some gold. First of all, um, our money system is something that can be manipulated by the Federal Reserve. And it can be manipulated in two very different ways. It can be manipulated through inflation. And it can be manipulated through deflation. And no one is capable of really looking forward and saying, what is going to be the next result? What is going to happen next? So if you were to put like the majority of your investments into gold, and it's inflation that kicks in really high and hot and hard, and the value of the dollar declines, declines, declines during any given period of time where there's a problem, you've made a good bet and you win. If you put the majority of your money into gold and you get into a situation like we're in now, gold's actually come down quite a bit from its high. And it's come down quite a bit from its high because we're dealing with a deflationary situation. Another thing that happened with gold recently, and people don't really realize this, I don't think, even today, part of why gold got so expensive for a while. It wasn't just its investment value. Uh, gold got expensive for a while, about a year and a half, two years ago, when times were really still pretty good out there, and uh, the economy in India and the economies in China were both growing like mad. And a lot of these guys in China and India that finally, had, you know, they've been serfs all their life, basically working on a farm or working with animals, and they 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 went to school and they got a degree in their socialized education system, and they got a job working on a computer and answering the phone and saying, "Hello, how may I help you? I'm from AT and T." Those guys, um, they're starting to get some status in the world. And one of the big status symbols for them over there is a gold chain or a gold ring. Uh, they really became, as a population, enamored with these things. And there was a massive demand placed on gold bullion for the creation of jewelry in these economies. When these economies experienced downturn, that demand waned. Right, So there's more things that place uh a fluctuation on a gold price than just how much is coming out of the ground and how strong the dollar is. There's also how much is there a, des- a desire for it, not just as an investment, but as a commodity. This is one of the things that creates gold volatility. So are we going to have the, the main consumers of gold for its commodity value, like India and China, dry up in their purchasing at the same time as shit hitting the fan? What's that going to do to the value of gold? I don't know. So you have gold do this up and down, up and down roller coaster, yet over time it seems to retain its value, and it has. And it's actually done a lot better in time than certain investments, and certain investments have outperformed it. That's why I see it as a hedge, because you don't really know what it's going to do. And I want you to look at this a different way. If I ask most people that prep, that store food, do you have all your food in your house in one place? They would say, no, I don't have it. Some of it's not even in my house with most people. They'd say, I have a remote location, or maybe even I have a shed outside. I've got some upstairs, I've got some downstairs, I've got some in the pantry. Spread it out. Well, why do you do that? Well, something happens to my house or someone steals something, I've only lost a part of it. I don't want to put it all in one place. That's a philosophy to take with you in everything that you do in your life, especially your investments. That's why not only do I say put some money in the gold, I also say don't put all your money into your IRAs and 401Ks. Because that's one type of vehicle. It's a tax-deferred. I can't touch it till I'm 59 and a half or 64, depending on the vehicle's certain age. Don't put it all into a structured annuity. Again, it's locked up for a period of time. Put some in cash, but don't put it all in cash. Put some in a CD. Don't put it all in a CD. Put some in some stocks. Don't put it all in stocks. Put some in bonds. Don't put it all in bonds. Chop it up in as many pieces as possible. Try to buy the best value investment you can in each class and keep your, your 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 finances spread out in such a way that when any sector takes a really bad hit, you have others hedging against it. You just take that philosophy and continue it on to gold. Now, somebody said to me, um, I, I think I should have 20% of my assets in gold. Would I say, I think you're wrong, don't do it? No, if that's what you believe, th- there's nothing wrong with that. Now, if you told me you are going to put half in gold... Uh, unless I saw like gold at a really low price for some reason that didn't make sense, that made it a good buy, and it was a, a, like a short-term play, I, I, I'd probably be really hesitant to do that. And I'd be hesitant the other way, too, unless it's money you can afford to lose. What you have to understand is that gold is a wealth hedge, but it is not. It is not the magic bullet that it is presented as by all these people whose job is to sell you gold. You, you really have to think. When somebody's job is to sell you something and they tell you it's the, the greatest thing since sliced bread, even if they're right, you better check into it first. So that's why I say, you know, 10%. I think it's a good starting place for people, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And if you think about it, let's say a person is saving. Oh, I don't know, they're a good, they're a good ant. They they they've paid off their debt. They're working their ass off. They're doing everything they can to put away five thousand dollars a year and they're saving $5,000 a year. Over a 10-year period, that is $50,000 into savings, right? Now, if they're doing 10% gold, that's $5,000 into gold. Now, if the gold value is increased, it may be worth 50 grand at at some point that inflation runs away. And and the whole point with that is you're hedging against the other side of your investment. And let me explain the other thing that is very important to understand when you're thinking about your investments, your finances, your money. The only reason you invest and put your money in any sort of risk at all is because of inflation. If we still lived in the type of economy that we had in the 1800s, uh, where we had our money backed by gold and the two were tied together and there was stability in the money supply and it didn't inflate and deflate and inflate and deflate and, inflate and just slowly work its way up inflation over time, then we wouldn't need to risk any of our money. All we'd have to do with our money is save it. And if somebody would pay us 2 or 3% on it, we'd be fine. The only reason we need interest rates that pay us a better return than 2 to 3% of our money is because we have inflation eroding it at about that rate or higher. So the reason we risk our money in the first place is because inflation erodes it. And inflation eroding our money all right, is, this, is one of the things that goes back and affects the price of gold. And gold will not always beat inflation. It's a myth. It's an absolute myth. Gold will beat a runaway inflation, because it has to. But if we're in a situation where the economy gets really dire, people are going to be more concerned about food than gold or silver. So you never put everything in one place. Part of it goes into preps, food, hard commodities, real estate, things that you'll use for the rest of your life. Part of it goes into traditional solid asset values like gold or silver. Part of it goes into to cash. Part of it goes into more traditional investments. Part of it gets deferred until after retirement. Part of it does not and it stays liquid. If you take that approach in all of your investments, you'll be a lot better off. And then there are times when you look at one single vehicle and go, bad times coming for this one, and that's what we had this summer with stocks. This summer was time to jump out of any stock you were in. And if you did that, the beauty is right now you could be buying these stocks for next to nothing. And, and I'm getting to a point where I think it's time to start picking some stocks up. And I'm picking cherry picking some things up here and there. Uh, but I can't give specific advice about that. I'm not a financial advisor. So, folks, this wraps up today's show. I, uh, I hope it's been a good one for you. I hope it's been a little bit different. Again, welcome to all the new folks. Uh, welcome to uh, our new advertiser. Again, please go check their site out today to see what they've got there. Again, uh, that's Ready Made Resources a banner on the uh, on the site, uh, consider joining the Member Support Brigade, there's some really cool videos, we're going to try to shoot some more this weekend back there in the Support Brigade, and of course every episode we've ever done available by keeping in Zip Files. Uh, thanks for tuning in, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
3: You can scream, and you can holler, it really
4: doesn't matter all get spent